our passage this morning, and it's Romans chapter 15, verses 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Thankful that you've uh, met with us to worship the Lord. Uh, I want to make you aware that uh, you've seen, if you, your tassel is in the book of Romans, that we are getting very, very near to the very end of that book. Uh, what's next for us is uh, the Psalms. So uh, there's a few of these scripture journals that are out in our book table that you can pick up and buy. Uh, those are out there available. We have 50 of them available. This, if there's a scripture journal to have, I think it's the Psalms. It's the one that's like, man, you get all the Psalms right here. We won't do 150 of them, but every Psalm I read, uh, I'm like, man, we got to preach that one. So maybe we will do 150 of them straight through. Uh, but there will be also be some other, we'll have a family devotional out there as well. So there'll be some Psalms resources for you guys. We want you guys to pick those up. That'll be after we're done with the book of Romans. Don't worry, we're not done yet. We still have a few more weeks in Romans. And then we'll hit that. As we turn to the end of of chapter 15, would you pray with me again? Uh, Father God, you delight in your people. And your presence is with your people. And so God, as you're with us and care deeply for us, may we gather around your word with great hope that you will speak to us and sustain us and keep us. May you give us peace the peace that we can share not only with you, but with one another. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul wants to add to your prayer list this morning. I don't know if the Romans were taking notes as they heard this letter uh, from Paul, but if they, if they were, like, man, they, they should have plenty in their notebooks, right? The, the gospel depths that he's been able to go to and the, the things that they can think about how uh, practically our life together, the points that he's been making. And at the end of chapter 15, Paul doesn't want them to put down the pen. He just is going to like, hey, why don't you pick up your prayer list? Are those still a thing? Hopefully they were, maybe they were back then. I don't know if they're an app or whatever for you now, but he wants us to pick up the prayer list and he wanted them to keep the pen moving, just pick up the prayer list and write my name on it. And here are a few requests I want you to pray. That's what he's doing. He's drawing this church in to joining him in this mission, this great ambition that he's had Uh, to take the gospel even further. Paul doesn't view his audience, and he never does, he doesn't view his audience as as an audience of passive recipients, as if they're a people to be entertained. He he views them as an audience, a people of God, Christians who are active participants in the mission of God. And so he writes to them as if they should actually live out their faith and not just receive something from him. He he wants them to actively live out their faith. And one of the ways that he wants them to actively live out their faith is through prayer. And so he writes at the end of chapter 15 to get their prayer support. 
And, and so he encourages both the Romans and all of his readers that are in on this to express their faith through prayer. And so here's a, a few ways that he does this here. He's going to make an appeal. That's verse 30. Then he's going to state his purpose and then his hope. So the appeal, the purpose, and the hope. He, he begins by using this word that he used all the way back in chapter 12, verse 1, where if you remember, in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul shifts. He shifts from kind of like, here's gospel depths to a little bit more, here's, here's the encouragements, here's the commands that we kind of we need to carry out as a people of God because of those depths. Like, by the mercies of God, what does he say? I appeal to you to do what? To, to give your lives, your body as a, a sacrifice, living, holy, acceptable to God. That was a strong urging there. It didn't sound maybe like a strong word when he says, I appeal to you. But he's using strong language. And he's going to use that same kind of language here in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers. And so in other words, when, when Paul is finishing out chapter 15, like the, the, the foot is not off the gas yet. He, he's not let up and coasting into home. Like he, the foot is still on the gas. He's pushing it down. There's no brakes that he's pushing yet. And he says in verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. I love how he appeals to these saints that are in Rome as brothers. There's just this glorious reality sunk down into that familial word. You brothers, these Roman saints. I think about all that he said in the book of Romans so far. He, he's spoken to them of how because of the truths of the gospel that they truly are family with one another. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how much sweeter and deeper do these words have for them than they first had after he said them the first time in the book of Romans? After he's gone through things like in chapter 8 where he says, you now, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've received the spirit of adoption, the spirit that cries out within you, Abba, Father, and you all get to do that. We cry, he says in that verse. We cry, Abba, Father. Or uh, chapter 8, verse 29, that we are among the, the ones who are patterned after the firstborn. But we're among many brothers. God has been after a people. Jesus Christ is the one we're being formed in the likeness of. He is the elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters with him as a family. So Paul is expressing again of himself and of the saints in Rome that we belong to one another as family, as brothers in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, he, he is an apostle, he is a minister of the gospel, but most, most fundamentally to these the saints that he's writing to, he's saying, I'm a son of God and you're my brothers. We're all in this as family. And so the saints in Rome that he's writing to, he's saying most fundamentally, you're not just recipients of this letter. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're brothers and sisters along with me because of the work of Christ. You're family, you're brothers. When we look around the room, when we see others who have trusted in Christ, there are many identifiers that we could place on others' lives. But maybe the most fundamental one is if someone is in Christ is that they are my family now in the deepest way possible. In chapter 12, verse 10, what does he say? Just a reminder that he had given to them earlier. He says we need to love one another because that's true. With what kind of affection? Brotherly affection. We're family. We belong to one another. And he appeals to them as brothers, but he adds some important and beautiful grounds for that appeal. Right, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. They, they are bound by and belong to the one true Lord. They belong to and are bound by the Lord Jesus Christ. This 
This is the one, if you look up who the Lord Jesus Christ is in the book of Romans, this is the one through whom they have received peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 11, you received reconciliation by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they have received this peace from God, this reconciliation from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the one in chapter 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, they confess together. This is the one in chapter 13, verse 14, he says, you are to be putting on what? The Lord Jesus Christ. They're putting this Lord on together. And so he's appealing to them by that commonality. We have this one Lord. He's reconciled us to God and he's given us peace with God. He's given us eternal life. We're putting him on in our lives in a daily practical way. And if that weren't a strong enough grounds for his appeal, he adds in there, and also by the love of the Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 5, it's the, the Spirit that pours the love of God into the hearts of believers. And that love that's poured in by the Spirit is then this love that's to be poured out. Remember he says, you need to love one another with this genuine love. In chapter 12, verse 9, that, that love that's being poured in is to be poured out in genuine and sincere love for others that are around them. They can look around the room as they're reading this letter and say, who should I pour love out to because love has been poured into me? Now, look around. Those are the people. Those are the faces you need to pour love into. And, and these being poured into and pouring out of in terms of love always go together. They always go together in the scripture. In 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Well, if he first loved us, then we love others. He actually says in 1 John, if you don't love your brother who you can see, then how in the world could you love this God that you don't see? Those belong together all the time. You love God, then you love others. Those belong together. Or, or think about the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians. What is the part of the fruit of the Spirit? What is the Spirit always producing, always working out in the lives of those that he dwells in? He's working out at least love. And if this isn't present, love for one another isn't present, then I think we have strong scriptural warrant to say maybe faith isn't present either. If the Holy Spirit is present, love for one another is present. If love for one another is not present, then I think we need to examine our faith to see whether it's genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, here as he writes this, appealing to this love of the Spirit, seems to be specifically appealing to their love for one another in the body of Christ because of the love that they've received from the Spirit. That is being produced in them by the Spirit. It should be produced in them in their life together as a people, as a community. And he is appealing to that. And by this strong appeal, and it's hard to get a stronger appeal than that, right? Lord Jesus Christ, love of the Spirit, by this strong appeal... Paul has got to be asking something big of them. Surely, right? But look what he says. Right? Like chapter 12, verse 1, and he appealed. He appealed by the mercies of God, and he appealed. This, this is a great appeal. You need to lay your life on the, on the altar. Be a living sacrifice. That's a massive appeal. Surely, he's, as he's appealing with, by our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Spirit, he's appealing for something big for them. Like, like chapter 12, verse 1, what does he appeal for? He says, I'm appealing to you to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Does that sound like a big appeal? I think it's just as emphasized as chapter 12, verse 1, this appeal to strive together. He says, strive together with me in your prayers. 
In, in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, be constant in prayers. Here's he's kind of assuming you're, you're picked up, you've picked up that exhortation, that command, and now I'm going to appeal to you to direct that prayer a little bit specifically on my behalf. Strive with me. He should assume that they're praying because they've been given the Spirit. And the Spirit is, what does the Spirit produce? It produces in them prayer. He said that in chapter 8. It, it invokes Abba, Father. And even prays on their behalf when they don't know what to pray for as they ought. But they ought to be praying. They just may not know what to pray for. And the Spirit helps them in their weakness there. So here he's not exhorting them to pray. He's just adding to what they're praying for. And he uses an interesting word. He says, strive together with me. That is to say, join in this fight. Contend along with me. Fight along with me. It is absolutely a word that's suggestive of battle, of struggle, and of wrestling. Now, a few weeks ago, I used a, an illustration from Lord of the Rings, and so I kind of hated to like, I didn't need to do it again, but then I was like, no, actually, I love to do it again, so I'm going to do it again. It just fills my mind when I think of battles Lord of the Rings, like Frodo has a task, take the ring, destroy evil, and then the, the fellowship joins him, says, hey, if, if this, as long as it's your task, I'm with you. What is, Aragorn, hey, if I can serve you by my life or death, I'm in. Legless, you have my bow. Gimli, you, you have my axe. Like, we're, we're in this with you. That's what Paul is getting at. Like, this striving together, we're going to fight in the middle of this with you as long as it is part of the fight. Or, or you go to the second movie, and you, and you have Helm's Deep, and, and King Theoden and Aragorn are kind of getting defeated by evil, and so they ride out, trying to ride out victoriously just to to try to put a, a, a dagger into the enemy even though they're going to be overwhelmed by it. And what do they see on the horizon? Gandalf pops over the edge and he says, Theoden stands alone. And then the, all the Rohirrim come and say, not alone. And they charge you know, into evil together. Or you can go to the last movie, which I will, and you can see Frodo is having a hard time getting up to Mount Mordor. And, and Frodo's like, well, I can't carry this for you, but I can carry you. I can strive together with you. So he picks him up. And while he's doing that, Aragorn's outside the Black Gate, and he's going to charge against the enemy just to take their eye off of Frodo. And who's joining him? Lots of people are joining in this. With Those are the kind of images that come into my mind. I think that's probably what Paul had in mind when he says, strive together in prayer. All of those are so like Jesus, though. Those pictures, like Jesus. Jesus is the one that said, we have to destroy evil. I'll go first. And he comes and he takes on flesh and he dwells among us and he lives perfectly and, and he's moving toward the, the cross. And what does he do? He goes into this garden and he says, you know what, I'm going to take the lead here and he steps forward and he runs toward the fight. And how does he run toward the fight in the garden of the Gethsemane? By striving in prayer, by, by sweating drops of blood because he's toiling, there's labor, there's struggle, there's wrestling there as he looks at the cup of wrath that he doesn't deserve but that we deserve but that he knows that he's going to drink all the way down. He's struggling and he goes first. What Gethsemane reveals is, is Jesus praying and what it reveals about this prayer is that it's not him taking it easy and just getting a breath before he goes to the cross because that'll be really hard. It's a struggle. It's a toil. Sweating blood. And do you remember what he calls the disciples to there? He's like, I'll take it first. I'll go first. What do you need to do? Watch and pray. What kind of thing would they have, if they have watched and prayed, they would have seen a prayer that was a struggling kind of prayer, a striving together with me kind of prayer. He says, watch and pray. Fight along with me. How are they to fight along with him? By bowing down and striving in prayer with him. Perhaps Paul has that scene in mind when he writes, strive together with me in your prayers. 
When he thinks about their prayers, when he thinks about prayer of himself, he, he thinks not of some sort of relaxed, passive state. He's thinking of a fight. Look at chapter 13 of the book of Acts. They're fasting and praying as a church before Paul is sent off on his missionary journey. In chapter 16, verse 25, he's with Silas in prison and they're singing hymns and they're praying. In chapter 20, as he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 36 and 37, when he said these things, they knelt down and they prayed with them all and there was weeping on the part of all and they embraced and kissed Paul. Doesn't sound like he's in the easy chair there. In Ephesians chapter 6, you might know that's kind of the chapter you think of when you think of the armor of God. What are the, what are the people with the armor of God to be doing? Praying at all times? Like there's imagery of battle, of war going on here, of a fight. We're in Romans chapter 1. How does he say he's praying for these Romans? Verse 9. God is my witness, whom I serve with the Spirit and the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. Prayer for Paul is a constant battle, a constant striving. And he says to these Romans, that's how I'm praying for you, constantly in my prayers. You need to strive together with me. You need to pray like this too. Is that the kind of struggle and striving together in prayer that you're familiar with? Is striving in prayer like that familiar to you? Are, are you going to God on behalf of others like that? Like your Aragorn uh, coming to the battle? Like your Frodo needing to carry, your Sam needing to carry Frodo? Is that the kind of striving that you think of when you think of prayer? My concern is that our view of prayer is less of being in the trenches with one another and more of like being on the bench. Like they're out there and I'm going to take it easy over here sitting on the bench while they're in the trenches. And that doesn't seem to be a biblical view of prayer at all. My concern is that our view of prayer is less of being on the front line and, and more of being in peacetime. That we're not in full battle array, which is what Paul would talk about in Ephesians chapter 6, but we're more taking it easy in the easy chair. And then on a Ought not be for us, church. If Paul peered into our prayer life, either individually or corporately, would he see striving there? If he knew our prayers, could he see us striving together? Could he use that word that suggests a fight and a struggle and wrestling to talk about how we pray? One pastor said this, that probably the number one reason that prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Prayer is for war. We used to, maybe we still use these words to talk about prayer warriors. Are there prayer warriors? Or are we just praying from the easy chair? You see, the strength of Paul's appeal, this is by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love that's been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The grounds of the appeal show that this is no half-hearted issue for Paul and that it's for all believers. That is, those who share in the same Lord Jesus Christ and the same love that the Holy Spirit pours in their hearts there to be pouring out into others. It's for all Christians. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And so let's battle alongside one another 
over sin and over the fights that are in their lives. The Holy Spirit binds us in love. So let's fight not with one another, but for one another in prayer. See, those who belong to one another in a local church ought to be able to look around and see others who are striving together with them in prayer. So who are you striving for? And who's striving for you in prayer? Man, there are, we have many invitations to this very thing here at Sojourn. We have Dragon Town Tuesday where we're saying, the gospel's not there. Let's own this together by striving together on at least one day a month, Dragon Town Tuesday, where we together set aside time to fast and pray and say, God, Christ is not named there. Would you let it be so? We invite people into equips. The last equips, the last two months and months to come are just times where we're together 45 minutes one time a month to pray together to strive together and we're trying to say let's let's be invited into this together church so we can strive together men we have once a month we pray the psalms you don't know how to pray you don't know who to pray with like just join us on saturday morning you're gonna get some breakfast probably and you're gonna pray through a psalm women they're actually going through a book called when you pray talking about prayer right now how do we pray what do we do about this home groups like part of our time is set aside in home groups that we might strive together in prayer outside we have a map on the wall a metal map of the the world right and and there's cards on the side of those are prayer cards those are invitations to strive together with some brothers and sisters across the globe in prayer And beyond that, we want to be people who welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. What does Christ do to welcome us? Well, he goes and he lives perfectly. He dies sacrificially. He raises victoriously. And he still, right now, is interceding for us. He's ready at any moment to strive with us, for us. And so we ought to welcome one another like that. If you need something that you you need us to strive together with you for, then like we want to welcome you as Christ has welcomed us. He is our help. In our trouble. And so we welcome our, those requests any time. We need this for one another and we need this of one another. Our partners out on that wall need this of us. Right? Like, think about just a few. Like we have the Swadleys that are in Southeast Asia. They're in a dark place where there is so little gospel light. Hard things. They need us. They don't have uh, this on a Sunday surrounding them. They need us. Think about our church partners, mission partners across the Middle East right now and how the unrest is starting to shake their lives as well. They need us. And they are inviting us into this to strive together with them in prayer. These are not invitations to sit back and relax and be passive while other people are on the front line. These are invitations to be on the front line, to be in the trenches, to get in the trench with another And so we need to plan for this. We need to prioritize it. We need to strive together in prayer because our Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's interceding and he's living and interceding for us that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. He's in us. He's stirring up love in us, producing it in us. He's groaning for us. He's producing what we need in order to continue to move towards love in one another. And so we need to strive together in prayer. That's the appeal that Paul makes to the Romans. And then he's going to move to the purpose of this appeal, and he gives their request. All right, here's what you need to do, he says. Take out your pen on the prayer list, write my name on it, and here's what I want you to write next to my name so that you'll pray for this. He says, pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may 
come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. I want us to rush past quickly that the Apostle Paul asks for prayer. And he asks for prayer. He doesn't say, you know what? This is a hard one. I'm on the front edge of mission work and church planning. Let's get Peter on the line. Let's make sure we call up James, the pillars of the church. He says, Roman Christians, people I haven't even actually been in person with, but I've heard of your faith. You normal people, I need you to pray for me. Strive together with me. Paul does that. And he does this often, right? He doesn't just do this in Romans. I mean, we could go through many times in 2 Corinthians. The Corinthian church was kind of a mess. And what does he say? Hey, you must also help by prayer. Help us by prayer. Jump in this with us in, in the book of Colossians chapter 4. He asked the, the Colossian Christians, pray also for us. First Thessalonians chapter 5, after he just had exhorted them, pray without ceasing, he says, brothers, pray for us. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. And like he's constantly asking churches that he's writing to to pray for him. Certainly then I, I would say that none of us is above the need for prayer from other normal Christians. Paul asks for it. We need to be a people who plan and prioritize striving for one another in prayer and also a people who are asking others to strive together with us in prayer. It's assumed by Paul here as he writes this book that these normal Christians have a role to play in one another's life and even in his life and ministry by striving together in prayer. They had a role for Paul and his life and his ministry, his mission by prayer. And so he asks them, would you join with me, fight with me in prayer? He wants them to join him in his mission through prayer. Paul is not wasting words, as if that was ever a thing for Paul. He's not just saying, like, I am kind of getting to the end here, what I want to do. Uh, I guess I'll have him pray for a few things. He knows. He's no dummy, right? I need prayer, and I need the saints to pray in order for certain things to happen. It's important to him, and its importance is seen in how he writes this, and so he's willing to ask. And here's what he asks for, two different things. Pray that I'd be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. That is, these are non-Christian Jews. And he had good reason to pray for deliverance from that specific group because he was under constant threat from Jews throughout his life and ministry. Right? Once he was converted on Acts chapter 9, he got put on a list that said, we want to take him out. And everywhere he goes, you can look it up through the book of Acts, everywhere he goes, it's primarily the Jews that are stirring up hatred, dissent, persecution, and harm against him. But when Paul says, I want you to pray that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, he doesn't just have in mind, I don't think, saving his own neck. He, he doesn't just have in mind, like, I'm kind of scared of these folks. Like, I, I'm, I'm fearful for my death. He, he doesn't have just in mind, like, I don't want to face pain. Probably some of those are all present within him. I'm, I'm sure he didn't like being stoned, which he was. I think he said this, that I might be delivered because of what he's just said in context, right? What is he making his ambition? What is he trying to do? He's trying to go to Spain. He's trying to take the gospel where it hasn't been. He says, Christ hasn't been named in places. And my ambition, my goal, my desire is to take the name of Christ where he has not been named. And now he's saying, pray with me that I might be delivered. For what? For the very thing I've been talking about. So that I might take Christ's name where he hasn't been named. He wants to go to Spain. He wants to go to places where Christ is not named. And so he says, pray that I might be delivered. So that I might go to those places. I might carry this mission out. The second thing he asks for is 
For the service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Mostly what Paul has done is he has gone out, planted churches, and stirred up some support for the relief of the saints that are in Judea and in Jerusalem. Most of his work has been frontline work in Gentile areas, where primarily they are Gentile Christians that he is loving on and ministering to. And so the, the collection of money that he has been raising in order to support the Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea has been mostly Gentile money. And for them to receive this is no small thing. You can just get the hint of the, the barriers and breakdowns between Jews and Gentiles and kind of their relations, how they would have worked out in, in some of just a sample of Paul's writings. He's constantly teaching the church how to interact specifically in the area of being Jewish and being Gentile Christians. He is constantly correcting them and trying to tell them, hey, here's what you need to do and not do because we are now one in Christ. He has to say to them, right, do you remember the wall of hostility that you guys have up? Well, that's been broken down in Christ Jesus. It wasn't a fake wall of hostility. There's real hostility that he had there that he had to think about, including much of Romans. A couple different chapters he's writing like, weak and strong in faith. And, and a lot of that had to do with whether you were a, a Gentile Christian or a Jewish Christian and how that worked its way out in community life. And so he has to tell them that the, the wall of hostility, that's gone. You're one body in Christ Jesus. You have one Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has been given to all of us. There's not like a, a pecking order of who's more favored in the sight of God or anything like that. He has to tell them, hey, Gentiles are included on this mission. Like they're actually included in the people of God now and we need to treat them like they are. And he has to tell them, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us because this relationship between Jews and Gentiles is a big deal. And so when he asks, like pray that this service to the saints in Jerusalem would be acceptable. Like, this is not like a, okay, like, sure, they're going to take the money. It's like, no, you need to pray for this because there's a lot of hostility and we need to get this through because this could go a long way in showing what's actually true of the body of Christ, that these people, even though they're very different and distinct, really love these people and are for their good because if part of the body's hurting, the other part is hurting as well, and they want to meet those needs, and he wants it to be accepted. So it's no slam dunk that that relief money is going to be acceptable to the saints. And so Paul asks for prayer. He wants his service and the service of the saints to be a benefit to the saints in Jerusalem. And so he says, pray. So not only does Paul set an example in asking for prayer, but I think what he even asks for, these two things that he asks for can be helpful for us. For his deliverance, it was tied to not just saving his own life, but to his ministry to the ministry of the gospel, to getting Christ where he wasn't named for the Great Commission. Paul's the one who can say, and he does say in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I count my life of no value or as precious to myself if only I may finish the race and the course that God has set before me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he's tied to here. And he says, pray for my deliverance. He's saying, it's not because my life is of great value other than I'm trying to carry out this ministry that Christ has given to me and I want the gospel to get out. And we can reflect this in our prayers and in our lives. Be people who aren't saying, deliver me because my life is so precious, but deliver me so that I might carry out the great commission that Jesus sent me on, right? That we are all to make disciples. And if we're going to do that, like we have to be living, breathing, walking people. Like to make disciples, we need to be going to do that. And so we can pray like Paul, like, hey, pray for our deliverance. It's okay. Like we're not sad about saying like, oh, I want to be spared. Like, no, we're, we want to be spared because our, our lives are tied to the mission of Christ. And if by our life we can serve that mission, then by all means pray that we might be delivered for that very purpose. We should be about getting the gospel out, fulfilling the Great Commission, getting Christ to where he's not named. We need to be 
for that as we are missionaries on this planet. And so we can say, pray that we might be delivered from those who would take us out. We want to live lives, again, where we are not just on the bench because Christ has said, if you're mine, I have called you and sent you. Those always go together with him. He doesn't call some to be his own and then put them on the shelf. He calls them and he sends them. He says, make disciples of all nations. It's this huge task, but he says, I'm with you. We are not on the bench with this task. And we only have some ambition that Paul has. We want Christ to be named where he is not named. We want Christ here and near and far and everywhere. And that is what Christ has sent us for. You might not have heard the name C.T. Studd, but it's a name you should know. He was a missionary and, and he saw a sign on a door. And here's what the sign on the door was inscribed with. It said, cannibals want missionaries. Now that's a... That's a eye grabber, right? <laughs> like you're just walking past, like I think he was in college, like you're just walking past this door and said, cannibals want missionaries? Like that's, I don't get your attention. And it did. It changed the course of his life. He, he asked further and he heard of hundreds of thousands of tribal people in Central Africa who had never heard the gospel. Christ hadn't been named there because no Christian had ever gone there. And he said that the shame sank deep into my soul. I said, well, why have no Christians gone? And he, as if he heard God reply, well, why don't you go? And he said, the doctors won't permit it. And the answer came, he says, am I not the good physician? Can I not take you through? Can I not keep you there? So there were no excuses. It had to be done. And here's what he goes on to say. He says, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. Wow. I'm thinking when Paul's saying, I'm making my ambition to go to Rome, the enemy's like, oh man, here it comes. Because he has just been taking it right into the heart of places that I have had under my stronghold this whole time, and it just keeps pushing me back and pushing me back and pushing me back. And that's what I want the enemy to say of sojourn. That... When sojourners are here on this earth, I want us to be clearly within the sights of the enemy because our Lord is Jesus Christ and we have nothing to fear. If he's for us, who could be against us? But I want him to be, uh, us to be in his sights because he's saying, man, these people keep pushing back darkness. They're not gliding through life. They're blowing the trumpet for their Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And, and I want them gone. And when they're gone, I will have the biggest Thanksgiving service in hell because they have been so taking the gospel out and Christ has so been using them. He's been in them and through them using them for the glory of his name that I want them gone, departed from this earth. May that be said of us. Let's live lives like that. And I'm not sure I live my life like that all the time. I want to start. Let's stay. Let's go. Let's get, follow our Lord Christ and let's get busy living lives like that that when we're done, the devil would celebrate our life being pulled off the field of battle. Let it be said of us as sojourners, of us as individuals, that even the way we pray, that they're blasting the trumpet at their place where they work, where they live, the things that they do, they're blasting the trumpet loud and long for their Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Here, near, and far, may that be said of us. For Paul, his service being acceptable it wasn't just about him being accepted. He wasn't just worried about how people are going to think of him. That wasn't what he was saying. He's trying to bless. He's trying to encourage. He's trying to bring actual relief. 
Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. I don't think he's saying here, pray that this would be accepted because I have some sort of selfish ambition here. I don't think that's what he's doing. In fact, we, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, we don't want to run this race uh, without aim, and we don't want to just beat into the air. We want to hit our mark, and his service is actually meant to bless. He doesn't want to box his one beating the air or run aimlessly. It's meant to hit where it's supposed to hit. And where we or others are trying to bless, are, are trying to actually hit a target, it's good to ask and to pray, hey, I'm trying for this service to be acceptable, would you pray with me? Or if they're asking, we're saying, yeah, I want to pray with you, that all of us wouldn't be carrying out this mission of just trying to beat the air. We're, we're trying to hit something. We, we have a target and we want what we're doing to hit its target, not just to beat the air. And so the purpose of these requests, it makes a tremendous difference to the actual request, doesn't it? It's always good, like when you're asking for something that you want prayer for or when others are asking, it's always good to ask why. Why, Paul? Why do you want to be delivered? Why do you want this service to be acceptable? Why? Why are we asking for the things right? It's always good to ask why. And, and what Paul, I think, could easily say is because this is in alignment with the Great Commission and I'm trying to do this certain thing for the glory of Christ, for the cause of Christ on this earth. So pray these things in order that those things might ultimately be fulfilled. And that's the way we ought to pray and think. And so the appeal is for them to pray. The purpose is for the gospel getting out and for these specific requests to be fulfilled so that the mission could be carried forward. And now he gives the hope. Paul's hope and anticipation of these answers to these requests is given in verse 32. Here's the hope. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. If you look back in Romans chapter 1, Paul stated a similar, this is the gold that he had. Verse 11, I, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He wants to come to them, and he wants to be mutually encouraged. Their faith to encourage him, his faith to encourage them. He wants this joy and refreshment in fellowship. This joy, this rest and refreshment in fellowship. Paul envisions Joy and refreshment with them, not in taking in the sights of Rome, not in him going on a, a personal tour of the things that he could see around the city, but notice what he says, that I might have joy and refreshment in your company. Now certainly refreshment and joy comes in a variety of ways, right? But for Christians, one ought to be true of us. There ought to be refreshment and joy in the company of other Christians in actual fellowship where there's mutual faith. There should be encouragement from that. Right? I'm all for it, and it's great to get good mountain air every now and then by yourself away from the company of saints or gloss mountain air if you can't go far. It's good to get some sea air every now and then or I guess meadow lake air. But you are certainly, if you are in Christ, meant to be refreshed in the fellowship of the saints. And if you're only refreshed when you're away from the saints and away from fellowship, then something is wrong. And, and there might be a lot of things wrong, but at least something is wrong if the fellowship of believers, if the company of the saints brings no refreshment, no joy, no encouragement, then something is drastically off. And I would say, if you personally don't receive any encouragement from the saints, then maybe you're not sharing in the same faith that they are sharing in. Paul has this longing to see them, to be with them. He has a hope 
of joy and refreshment in their company. But, but he says in verse 32, Though by God's will I may at last, I, will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Did you miss that first portion? He, he has this hope, this longing, this desire, but he also submits it all to God. So at last by God's will. Right, Paul has ambition to take Christ's name where he hasn't been named. I, I want to go to Spain, he says. He prays. He asks for prayer. That, that I might be delivered so I can carry that out. Why don't you join me in that? And he submits it all to will of God, to the will of God. Now none of these things are incompatible. His longings, his desires, his ambitions, and God's will, those are not incompatible with each other. The, the, the same Paul who wrote chapters 8 and 9 where he's saying God is God from first to last. He is sovereign over all things. And it's his prerogative to be sovereign over all things as God. That's what he is. That's what he does. He's the sovereign one. The same Paul that wrote those chapters that we saw this uh, magnificent view of God's greatness and glory as seen in his sovereign hand is the same Paul that's writing chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 where he's talking about all these practical things that they're to carry out by God's command. St. Paul, right? He knows God, and he knows that this is a God who chooses to work by means. So he expects God to, in his life, I expect God to meet my needs. I'm content in all situations, and yet he asks for the help of saints to meet his needs. <laughs> he does both of those things. He believes and trusts in both those things. He asks for prayer. He knows God is sovereign, and he asks for prayer. He knows God's over all things, and he asks for prayer. Like he displays both faith, that is rest in God, reliance upon God, and obedience to God by saying, would you please pray for me? And I need to pray as well. And I think that the, the compatibility of those two and is seen so interestingly in, in Acts chapter 27. Paul, he's, we'll get to this in a minute, but he's on his way to Rome, really. He's in a boat. He's under arrest. They're taking him to Rome. He had appealed to Caesar. And here's what he says. Verse 23, this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all on this, all those who sail with you. Hey, there's God's will. He got it spoken to him by an angel. That'd be nice. Sometimes we'd want that. Like, God, would you speak to us by an angel to show us your will clearly? Paul got that a few times. Here's one of them. You're going to be saved. All right. But then later on, people are getting a little antsy on this boat that God has promised will be saved. So verse 30, the sailors, they were seeking to escape the ship, and they started to lower the ship's boats into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. And Paul says, verse 31, to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So are they going to be saved or are they not going to be saved, Right? He says, you're going to be saved, and the means you're going to be saved is that you stay on this boat, right? That's the means that God is going to use to save you on this ship. And so there's both those things at the same time. So obedience to the commands is part of the means that God uses to fulfill his will, his sovereign will. He tells us these, there's will of command, do these things. That is always God's will. We don't see the sovereign purposes, sovereign will of God all the time. But how does he carry out this sovereign will? By the obedience to his commands. At least that's part of the means that God uses to fulfill his will. So Paul says, I want to go to Spain. Well, is that the will of God or not? But, well, he said to make disciples of all nations. And Christ hadn't been named there, so I'm going to make that my ambition. It's including... 
I got an alignment to the will of God. Guess what? Was that the will of God? Ultimately, we can look back and say, well, we don't think so because we don't think he got to Spain. Maybe he did. Probably he didn't. And so was it the will of God or not? Like, well, yes and no. And, and for Paul, that's not an issue. He's not concerned about that. I, I'm in alignment with the heart and the will of God by listening to his commands and trying to faithfully carry them out. So if my ambition is that Christ be named in places, even if I haven't had an angel declare this thing to me, then I'm clearly in alignment with the will of God. And so this is what I want to do. It seems to align with the will of God in saying, go make disciples of all nations. So would you praise, pray for me that that might be so? Those are all good things to ask. He, he says pray. He even submits, but I know it all. It's, it's by the will of God or not. Pray for this, that I might be delivered and come to you, but God's in charge. Paul had no divine revelation that he was going to get to Spain. He had no guarantee that he was going to be delivered in Jerusalem. In fact, later on, he's going to receive this prophecy that says, you're probably going to get bound and you're going to die. Don't go, they said. He's like, I think I'm still going to go. He had no guarantees of deliverance or of getting to Rome. No divine revelation that says you're going to get to Spain. His ambition to go there, his desire for them to pray that he might be delivered, those are all good things. But he submits them all to the will of the Lord. He says, it's by God's will or not. So he knows that when he says for them to pray, that might be the means God uses to deliver me and to get me to you and to get me to Spain or not. It's by the will of God. We get a chance to look back, though, and say, did God answer these requests? Let's start with the second one, the, the request to say that this gift that he's bringing might be acceptable to them. If you look in Acts chapter 24, this is the only hint of what has happened to this. It says, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. That's what we have. We think they received it. We have no reason to think that they didn't receive it. So God used the prayers of ordinary Christians miles away, 800 miles away from where Paul is probably writing it. What was it, 1,500 miles from where Paul is? I mean, I can't remember, another 18, eight, 800 miles from there. It's like, they're probably 1,500 miles away. And God uses their prayers to fulfill exactly what Paul asked for when he says that my uh, act here, my service to them would be accepted. What about the first one? I might be delivered from these people in Jerusalem. That's a tough one. In Acts chapter 21, Paul shows up, and they, these non-Christian Jews, they take him and they beat him. But he's delivered when the centurions, when the soldiers, they come down and they arrest him. There's your deliverance, Paul. We prayed for this, and here's how it came. It came through you being arrested, and we're going to take you into our fortress so that the Jews can't kill you. So did, they, did God answer his request? Yes. But the saga continues, right? Because in Acts chapter 23, there's a plot to kill Paul, right? Again, non-Jewish Christians are saying, let's get rid of this man, and we're going to fast until we do. But the plot is figured out and is foiled. And so what happens? They say, we've got to get you out of here. We've got to get you to a different place. This is not good for you. So was he delivered from Jerusalem? Yes, again, Paul used their prayers, or God used their prayers again to deliver in strange means, strange ways to get Paul out of Jerusalem alive and safe. And so he goes to Caesarea, and then chapter 25, when it doesn't look like they're ever going to free him, he appeals to Caesar. Again, he's delivered from this place. Strangely, God keeps answering these prayers for his deliverance, and guess where he goes when he appeals to Caesar? He goes right to where Caesar would be. He gets to sail to Rome. Was their prayer answered? Well, yes. Surely not in the way that Paul had envisioned or they had envisioned, but yes. And how was Paul delivered? 
We have to say, when we're looking back, at least part of the means that God used to deliver Paul was their prayers that he'd asked for. Was it God's will for Paul to go to Rome with joy? Yes. Probably a way different way than what he envisioned and than what we would have thought of. But yes, he goes to Rome by different ways and different means, but partly by the means of their prayers, joining with Paul in his service. In church, with a sovereign God, And with the means of prayer, we need to know that those things belong together. We have a sovereign God, and we have means like prayer and obedience, carrying out the commands of God. And sovereignty and carrying out those commands, carrying out the means of prayer, those kind of normal, ordinary things to us, those things aren't obsolete from one another. When we pray and we carry out the, and we obey and carry out the commands of God, that's not obsolete from the will of God. That's the way we participate in the will of God. What a privilege. What a thought. What a God that our sovereign God, who can do what he wants, his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. He can accomplish his will how he wants. And that God is so good to have said that I want to accomplish my will through you. By your obedience to my commands. What a God. He's accomplishing his will, not without us, but he chooses to use us. Even things like our simple prayers and striving to belong together with one another. And it's this God that Paul asks, finally, in verse 33, to grant them peace. Verse 33, he says, May that God, the God of peace, be with you all. Amen. This community that he writes to, especially as he's written the last couple chapters, is a community that has some tension. They have some issues. They need some stuff worked out in their midst. And, And he says and prays for them, like, I want you to have peace. The source and provider of that peace is not gonna be your great tactics, your your tips and tricks for how to be, you know, social with one another. It's gonna be from God. He's the source and the provider of this peace. And if he's with them, then who could be against them in order for they might have peace in community? Paul would say, nothing could be against that if this God of peace, the source and provider of it, is with you. And so may that God of peace be with you all. Amen. God is the source and the provider of peace for us too. Peace with God is only found through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through his life, death, and resurrection that one can have peace with God. Peace with one another is only through the Holy Spirit given to us, pouring love of God into us that we might pour it out toward others. It only is provided by, the source and provider of it is God. And his will is not unclear in this area. God desires peace with us, so he sends his son and says, believe in him. He wants us to have peace with one another, but he also provides means. He wants peace with us, there are means. Here are the means, repent and believe. You want to have peace with God? You need it. The need to repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to have peace with others? There's a means. There's a means of this peace. It involves faith and repentance in the one true living God. But one of the pieces is just carrying out the commands he's given. Praying for one another. Welcoming one another. Like considering one another. You want peace with one another? There's means. There's commands. God wants us to carry them out. One of the means of maintaining peace with one another is the Lord's Supper. This is a meal of remembering what Jesus has done on our behalf that we take with one another. 
It's a meal of unity where we look around and say, if they're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we are one. We are family with one another. If you cannot look around the room and say that, then don't take this meal. It's a meal of unity. But if you can look around and say, that man and woman is in Christ, or person is in Christ, and I'm in Christ, then we truly, most fundamentally, are one. We are family, brothers and sisters. It's a meal of hope. Not that unity and, per- and peace is perfect yet, but that if we're striving after living holy lives, and if they're striving after holy lives, then we are being conformed to the likeness of the Son, Jesus Christ. And pretty soon, this community is going to be a community full of peace. In this meal, we're looking to God. Right? We're, we're saying He is the source, He is the provider, and that's what we look to with one another. He is the source, He is the provider. If you don't have peace with others in this room, please don't take this meal. Fix that first. And then by faith, come and take this meal another time. If you're not one who puts all of your hope and trust in Christ, you say, don't take this meal. Take Christ. And if you don't know what that looks like or what that means to believe in Jesus, to hope only in Jesus, ask another believer. Find one of us and say, hey, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And we'll prepare you to, or give you words, hopefully, of the gospel and say, you can take this meal once you've got this between God settled. You can have peace with God through Jesus. Repent and believe. But if you do have peace with God, you should have peace with one another. Take this meal as a means of maintaining that peace as we remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Pray with me. (laughs) Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word that shows just your gracious character that you would, as a sovereign God overall, still want us, delight in us, and use us. Would you please help us to be a people who strive together for one another in prayer? Would you please teach us what that looks like? And would you help us be a people who know that we're not going to drift into that, but we plan it out because we prioritize it and value it so deeply. Would you, God, show us what it looks like to faithfully pray for our mission partners and one another in this room the way Paul asked for prayer in this passage? That we could, again, be a church that some of our partners could look to and say, they're striving with me. And although they're distant, they're praying to the same God. God, would you grant us peace? For those who don't have peace with you, would you show them their need for peace? That your wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and that we may not have a problem with you, God, but in our sin, you certainly have a problem with us, and there needs to be peace, but you have made a way for peace through your son, Jesus. Would you show those who don't have that peace that the greatness of your son. And may they be drawn to him and may nothing hinder them from coming to him in repentance and faith. For those of us who are in Christ, as we take this meal of peace and unity and of looking back to the work of Jesus and to a looking forward of his return and coming where he will be the the prince of peace, the king of peace, and take us to a city of eternal peace, as we do that, may we do it in great hope 
that although our peace isn't perfect down here, as it's being worked out, we have this hope that it will be perfect one day soon. And may that day come soon. This meal is a foretaste of that day. May we take it in great joy and anticipation for that day to come. And may it come soon. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.